This is Shaniqua, the virtual production manager for Romeo and Scott. Romeo is on his honeymoon, and Scott is on assignment. So, on with the show. Welcome to the Romeo Show. Be sure to visit rightwingmedia.net to see the latest conservative news stories, including former President Trump's new social media site getting blasted with porn, China building nuclear missile launch pads, and the continuing COVID saga. But first, since you might not have gotten the invite to the private wedding of Romeo and Juliet, we have the audio of the ceremony for you. The Right Reverend, Scott Hum officiates. beloved we are gathered here on this beautiful day to witness the union of and in holy matrimony this is a day of great celebration and reverence on which we come together before God to recognize and commemorate the sacred love and dedication shared between these two people it is wonderful to have family and friends here to join us today the groom and bride would like to thank their guests for being here all of you and would like you to know each of you that you were invited here on this day because you have played a very big part in their intertwining lives. The Bible reminds us in Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. In that time that these two have spent together, they've built a sturdy foundation for a lifelong relationship. And after a great deal of thoughtful consideration, they have decided to bind themselves to one another for the rest of their lives. May you all remember and cherish this sacred memory. For this day with love, we will forever bind these two together. Who gives the bride away today? Do you give yourself, my dear? Okay. Accordingly, since the bride is giving herself away today, which is not only figuratively, but wonderfully listed accordingly, according to the traditions of the church and the families and friends, 
we must ask one last important question. Is there anyone in attendance who has any cause to believe that this couple should not be joined in marriage? May you speak now or forever hold your peace. Hearing no one saying to that effect, we will indeed continue. Marriage is a sacred ceremony. Today we observe the union of these two people with respect to the occasion that it warrants. What we honor with reverence, however, we also celebrate with great joy. For married life, a shared life, is a tremendous blessing. Now, and as embarking this journey together, they will be able to nurture a love that makes each of them better versions of themselves. Marriage is indeed the perfect garden for which to sow and harvest personal growth. As Juliet and Romeo learn to work together, to laugh together, to love together, don't get caught up in the worldly things that draw you apart. Instead, focus on your shared devotion and turn inward. As your relationship strengthens, you will find that you come to share a remarkable love, a love that is both abundantly given and freely accepted, a joy that you will pursue your shared lives that will fuel and face head-to-head -head the challenges you'll encounter this earth. On your journeys together, keep your spouse in the space of the highest priority in your heart. The love you share must be guarded and cherished. It is your most valuable treasure. Under the eyes of God, I solemnly consecrate these matrimonial proceedings and the sacred covenant you shall both enter into this day. Marriage is an ancient rite. As you enter into this union, you are choosing to take part in the historical, his human establishment and are pledging your commitment before the witnesses present here today to enter into that tradition with honor. As Jesus said, have you not read that he who have made them at the beginning made them male and female? He also taught that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined, let not man separate. The sacred vows that you, Romeo, and you, Juliet, make to one another today present you with the opportunity to express your love in your own words. At this time, I would invite you to publicly declare these vows if you wish to say a few words. I would, if I may. Go ahead and Juliet. Sit, sit down. So we can see you. Juliet, Juliet, for as long as I've loved you and I've known you, you have been more than a friend to me. You have been my companion. You have helped me through the times, through the rocky waters. You've never given up on me. You have never shown me that you have been angered or made by me. You have always stood by my side and you have always cared for, my, for me. Through sickness and through health, you have been there. You have been more than what God has given me. I may not deserve your love, but God has given me your love because you are a gift from God. And I will not take that for granted, nor will I abuse that love. I will cherish and honor and promise to love you till death do us part. And as God is my witness in front of my friends, I do. Promise you, Romeo, 
deep in my heart as I, Romeo, make you this promise. For the rest of my life, I will be there to honor and love you and hold you and make sure that everything that you need is done. No questions asked. I will be there for you through the hard times and the good. I cross my heart as I played that song to you. That song was more than just a promise. That song was actually a testimony, a statement to you that I will do that exact same thing. That's all. Juliet, do you want to say anything? Yes. Um, I know ever since I you, you've been the only Very and nicely. And I promise the same thing to be loyal, faithful, and always be true and make sure that you are always having things that you need done. Very and nice. said at this time we begin the exchanging of the vows that you make one another today and present to you the opportunity you've made your own words your own vows and now we become the time that the formal vows take place if you would Romeo we will start with you I, Romeo, I, Romeo, take you, Juliet, I take you, for my lawfully wedded wife, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold, to have and to hold, this day forward, this day forward, for richer, for poor, for richer, poor, for better, part. for better, for worse, and for better and worse, I promise to be true to you in good times. I promise to be true to you in good times. And in bad. And in bad. In sickness and in health. In sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you. I will love you and honor you. All the days of my life. For all the days of my life. Till death do us part. 
Now death do us part. This is my solemn vow. This is my solemn vow. I take you, Romeo, for my lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold. She said have to have and hold. From this day forward, for richer, for poorer, I promise to be true to you in good times and bad, in sickness and in health. In sickness and in health, I will love you and honor you. All the days of my life, until death do us part. This is my solemn vow. Being that we are not fully together because of the pandemic and other concerns, we will not obviously join hands, but under the eyes of God, Romeo, do you take as your lawfully wedded wife? By making this commitment, you are joining in a sacred covenant of marriage. Do you promise to love her, be sensitive to her needs, to comfort her in difficulty, and to put your full and complete trust in her, so long as you both shall live? I do vow that and promise to keep that covenant and that vow for as long as I live until death do me part. Under the eyes of God, do you take your lawfully wedded husband? By making this commitment, you are joining in the covenant of marriage. Do you promise to honor him in love, to be sensitive to his needs, to comfort him in difficulty, and put your full and complete trust in him so long as you both shall live? I do, and I swear to God, I promise and vow. To commemorate this union will show us the ring that will be given. This is a token of your love and commitment to one another that you will always love and promise each other what you have made today you will promise in the future at this point by the power vested in me by the universal life church and by the state of oregon i now pronounce you husband and wife lawfully wedded before god you may now pack a dip no just kidding. You may now kiss the bride, etc., for ever sealing your union. And ladies and gentlemen, may I present you Mr. and Mrs. Hill. Ladies and gentlemen, applause. Romeo, go ahead and hit some music if you like. Sure. This should sound a little familiar. Congratulations to both of you.
I wish I were a real person, because I would probably cry over this COVID-inspired virtual wedding. Let's take a break while I wipe away my figurative tears. This is Shaniqua, Romeo and Scott's virtual production assistant, and you are listening to The Romeo Show on the Weird Media Network. Scott Hum, and a lot of you know I do internet comedy, and also I'm a conservative freelance journalist, but you may not know that I suffer from bipolar disorder. Just like I try to keep it together for my daily job, I sometimes need help. But whether or not you have professional help, you're in an emotional crisis. Don't rely on just yourself. You don't have to. There's tons of resources in your community including your friends and your family. And if you don't think they will understand or have the ability to, or the cares or whatever, there are other professionals out there. Just look them up on the internet. There's people out there who genuinely want to help. Those of us on the internet, sure, we want to entertain you. We want to make you laugh. But sometimes the magic doesn't always work and you can't find it always in yourself. Reach out if you have to. Thanks, and welcome back to The Romeo Show. You know, Ronald Reagan was one of the most famous conservative American presidents ever, and probably one of the funniest. Here are some of the most amusing bits from his speeches, courtesy the Ronald Reagan Library. Mr. President, I want to raise an issue that I think has been lurking out there for two or three weeks and cast it specifically in national security terms. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, distinguished members of the Congress, honored guests, and fellow citizens. Today marks my first State of the Union address to you, a constitutional duty as old as our republic itself. President Washington began this tradition in 1790 after reminding the nation that the destiny of self-government and the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty is finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. For our friends in the press who place a high premium on accuracy, let me say, I did not actually hear George Washington say that. But 
it is a matter of historic record. <laughs> On our way here in Air Force One, I was looking down over the, your countryside out here because most of the way from Oklahoma, I was looking down at clouds. And uh, I could say that it reminded me of a story, but actually I wanted to tell the story whether anything reminded me or not. <laughs> it was about a fellow that was driving down a country road and all of a sudden I looked out and there beside him was a chicken. He was doing about 45 and the chicken was running alongside. So he stepped on the gas, he got it up to about 60 and the chicken caught up with him and was right beside him again and then he thought, was he was looking at him, that the chicken had three legs. But before he could really make up his mind for sure, the chicken took off out in front of him at 60 miles an hour and turned down a lane into a barnyard. Well, he made a quick turn and went down into the barnyard too and there was a farmer standing there. And he asked him, he said, did, did, did a chicken come past you? And he said, yeah. Well, he said, am I crazy or did the chicken have three legs? And he says, yep, it's mine. He says, I breed three-legged chickens. <laughs> and the fellow said, for heaven's sake, why? Well, he says, I like the drumstick. Ma likes the drumstick. And now the kid likes the drumstick. And we just got tired of fighting for him. <laughs> and the driver said, well, how does it taste? He says, I don't know. I've never been able to catch one. As Henry VIII said to each one of his six wives, I won't keep you long. <laughs> I spoke of the difference between our two countries. I try to follow the humor of the Russian people. We don't hear much about the Russian people. We hear about the Russian leaders. But you can learn a lot because they do have a sense of humor and you can learn from the jokes they're telling. And one of the most recent jokes I found kind of, well, personally interesting, maybe you might tell you something about their country. The joke they tell is that an American and a Russian were arguing about the differences between our two countries. And the American said, look, in my country, I can walk into the Noval office, I can hit the desk with my fist and say, President Reagan, I don't like the way you're governing the United States. And the Russian said, I can do that. The American said, what? He says, I can walk into the Kremlin, into Brezhnev's office, I can pound Brezhnev's nest, desk, and I can say, Mr. President, I don't like the way Ronald Reagan is governing the United States. <laughs> Now, I know that a lot of you have been having some fun with my advancing years. You even tied my recent surgery to my age. Well, I've got to be honest with you. I had that same operation when I was young, and it felt so good I wanted to have it done again before I was too old. But I am aware of my age. When I go in for a physical now, they no longer ask me how old I am. They just carbon date me. <laughs> Incidentally, I've got a news item for you. We have a spinoff from our Star Wars research. It's a helmet for me to wear at press conferences. All I do is push a button and it shoots down incoming questions. <laughs> you have to admit, though, that my attitude is better than linebacker George Atkinson's when he was with the Oakland Raiders. 
Someone asked him what the player's reaction would be if the press box blew up. He said, we'd have 30 seconds of respectful silence and then continue with enthusiasm. (laughs) Now, honest, I don't feel that way. Maybe once in a while. (laughs) Nancy, would you like to join me up here for, please? I know it's getting late, dear, but it's not often that we have so many people who've written about us and broadcast about us (laughs) all together in one room like this, and I thought you might like to say a few nice words to them. (laughs) They're all from the press and radio and television. Maybe just a friendly little greeting would do. (laughs) How about just a... word or two, something friendly, even one kind word. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. (laughs) Seriously, my friends, as always, we've had our share of laughs tonight at one another's expense, which is as it should be in a city where the issues are important and the passions run so deep. Maybe the fun and good nature of evenings like this is a good place to start. So thank you for your hospitality and thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you all so very much. In all the 36 anniversaries of my 39th birthday, this has certainly been (laughs) the most memorable. George and Barbara, all of you up here on the top shelf, together with me and all of you ladies and gentlemen, I am enormously touched. Yesterday is my birthday. 75 years ago, I was born in Tampico, Illinois, a little flat above the bank building. We didn't have any other contact with the bank than that. (laughs) Now, here I am, sort of living above the store again. Speaking of old times, you may have heard that tomorrow is my birthday. Now you know about that. I prefer to think of it as the 36th anniversary of my 39th, but I'll be just about due for a midlife crisis. In fact, I'm thinking about a career change. Drop this political business and see if I can't do something different like radio or the movies. Maybe I'll give politics another three years. This time of the year always tends to be a summing up time for me. It's been swearing in time and the new year every year and a birthday, the 36th anniversary of my 39th birthday. I always think age is relative. There was once a very famous baseball pitcher, Satchel Paige. And no one quite knew how old Satchel was, but he still was throwing that ball. And uh, somebody asked him about that, and his wise answer was, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? (laughs) uh, That's how I came up with 39. Uh, Well, the late Jack Benny had something to do with that. 
He was 39 for more than 40 years. I can't close without one story about doctors that he will understand very well. Have you ever noticed how easy it is if you're introduced to someone at a party or a dinner or something and, they, and he's introduced as doctor? And then there's always those people that suddenly start saying, Doctor, I've been having... And, <laughs> well, we had a fellow in show business, Moss Hart, the playwright, who was an inveterate along that line. And so one night at a cocktail party in Hollywood, he was introduced to a Dr. Jones. And almost immediately, he started talking about, I've been having this low back pain. And the fellow that introduced them said, Moss, Dr. Jones is a doctor of economics. <laughs> and that didn't stop Moss at all. He said, Doctor, I was buying some stock the other day. <laughs> no. Well, I don't want to go on too long. This is, after all, Las Vegas. And outside, just a moment ago, I saw a fellow trading 10 passes to the Reagan talk for one ticket to Frankie Valley. <laughs> I'm mindful too that bringing things to a good conclusion is always a, a tricky business. You were told that I was a sports announcer, WHO Des Moines. Well, back in those days, the great evangelist Amy Semple McPherson was making a tour of the country holding revival meetings and one of them in Des Moines. Now, the station thought it would be a good idea, an enterprising public relations man, to interview Amy Semple McPherson. But why they picked a sports announcer to interview that noted evangelist, I'll never know. But there we stood in the studio, and I asked her several what I thought were appropriate questions, and then she answered graciously, but then went into a very fervent plea about the success of her meeting. And I sat down. Until suddenly I heard her saying goodnight to our radio audience, and I looked up at the clock, and there were only four minutes to go. Well, I didn't know enough about Amy Semple McPherson that I could put on, that I could fill four minutes. So I got up, and in those days of radio and disc jockeys and so forth, I started thanking the noted evangelist Amy Semple McPherson and so forth, but I did like this, which means get a record ready. And the fellow out in the control room through the window reached out. There was always records around there for such contingencies and picked one up and put it on the table. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this broadcast by the noted evangelist Amy Semple McPherson with a brief interlude of transcribed music. I expected nothing less than the Ave Maria. The Mills Brothers started singing Minnie the Moocher's Wedding Day. She never did say goodbye. She just slammed the studio door. She, she went out. <laughs> and by the way, on the matter of the INF Treaty, I told the Senate not to worry about verification. I told them I'd take care of it. <laughs> and while Gorbachev was here, I even made him write a hundred times, I will not cheat, I will not cheat. <laughs> oops, oops. Uh. Well, now, during my presidency, I've always emphasized diplomacy. But sometimes it comes to the point you have to use force in foreign affairs. 
and here I am arm wrestling General Norega for Panama. <laughs> we really enjoyed our trip to China and were amazed that the population was over a billion people. And as you can see here, the lines are terrible. On another trip, the government of Indonesia gave us these gifts, and they're our friends. <laughs> Actually, I love this shirt. I finally found something louder than Sam Donaldson. And speaking of the press, Remember during the contra-aid vote when the networks wouldn't let me on the air? I bet you wondered how I finally got my message out. <laughs> it's no secret that the press and I sometimes don't get along. In addition to my standard ploy of using helicopter noise to avoid reporters' questions, I've now added a new method to avoid questions, tear gas. I've loved almost every minute I've been in office, although there were a couple of trips to the hospital. In case you're wondering what happened here, I had just said, so Don, you, you say you're gonna write a book. <laughs> One of my greatest enjoyments is talking to the young men and women who defend us from attack. Here I am on top of the White House. And the soldier is explaining where he thinks the next book will come from. <laughs> it's fortunate that not everything has been spilled in these books, however. I mean, I hope the environmentalists never find out about this one. We used to fly Air Force One over Wyoming low and shoot buffalo from the window. But I'll tell you someone I trust totally, George Bush. He's been a wonderful vice president, and he'll make an excellent president. And that's why I endorsed him and why I'll work hard for him this fall. Here we are listening to one of his speeches. <laughs> you here tonight do good, hard, creative work. And I respect that, too. So, as we say our farewells here tonight, this salutes for you. Thank you very much, but I think George and I should be applauding you. I thought it'd be good to get together now that we've all rested from our summer vacations. Although it's true summer vacations aren't always restful, you know that that leads to a story. There was a fellow that was on his way to a mountain resort and a policeman stopped him and said, did you know that you're driving without taillights? And the driver hopped out of the car. He was so badly shaken that the officer took pity on him and said, well, now, wait a minute, calm down. It's not that serious an infraction. The fellow said, it may not mean much to you, 
But to me, it means I've lost my trailer, a wife, and four kids. <laughs> I was in Las Vegas some years ago to address the annual Farm Bureau meeting. And on my way to the hall, a fellow recognized me and asked what I was doing in Las Vegas. And I told him I was there, what I was there for. And he said, what are a bunch of farmers doing in a place like Las Vegas? And I couldn't resist. I said, Buster, they're in a business that makes a Las Vegas crap table look like a guaranteed annual income. <laughs> you know, there's a story about a pig and a chicken. They got tired of farm life, decided to find jobs in town. They no sooner arrived in town when a chicken spotted a sign in the window of a restaurant. It said ham and eggs, a dollar and a quarter. The chicken suggested they go in and apply. And the pig said, wait a minute. For you, this job only requires a contribution. For me, it's a total commitment. <laughs> you know, I can't resist. I'm accused, and certainly some elements accuse me of too much of telling anecdotes and so forth. But I think it would be appropriate before I say anything else that one of my favorite stories about government had to do with a, an employee who sat at a desk and papers came to his desk. He read them and determined where they were to go and initialed them and sent them on. And one day a classified document came there, but it came to him, so he read it, initialed it, and sent it on. Twenty-four hours later, it came back to him with a note attached that said, you weren't supposed to see this, erase your initials, and initial the erasure. <laughs> but even Howard Baker's writing a book about me. It's called Three by Five, The Measure of a Presidency. <laughs> Mike, Mike Devers in his book said that I had a short attention span. Well, I was going to reply to that, but Oh, what the hell? Let's move on to something else. <laughs> George Bush is doing well. George has been a wonderful vice president, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> I put him in charge of anti-terrorism, and the McLaughlin group is still on the air. But with so much focus on the presidential election, I've been feeling a little lonely these days. I'm so desperate for attention, I almost considered holding a news conference. <laughs> I've even had time to watch the Oscars. <laughs> I was a little disappointed in that movie, The Last Emperor. I thought it was going to be about Don Regan. <laughs> One example is a story they tell. You know, you have to wait 10 years there for delivery after you order an automobile. And so a fellow had finally gotten the money together and was going to buy an automobile. Only about one out of seven families have them in that country. And he went through all the paperwork and everything and finally signed the last paper, laid down his money, and then the man behind the counter said, come back in 10 years and get your automobile. And the man said, morning or afternoon? <laughs> And the, wait, wait. the fellow behind the counter says, well, what difference does it make 10 years from now? And he said, well, a plumber's coming in the morning. 
I know that some of you are no beginners when it comes to writing headlines. Reminds me a little bit of a cub reporter. You knew that something would remind me of a story. <laughs> a cub reporter whose first solo assignment was interviewing a fellow who was just going to have a birthday that made him the oldest person in town. And he got to the address. It was an older building out in the outskirts of the city. An elderly gentleman ushered him in. He sat down and the reporter determined he was the man. And he, he said uh, he was there for the interview and he led right to the matter about how old are you and the man said 96 he said to what do you attribute your longevity and the fellow said i don't smoke drink or run around with wild women and at that moment there was a crash from upstairs and the reporter looked up and he said what was that and the old boy said oh that's dad he's drunk again <laughs> you know there was a time that being a republican in this area of the country Felt a little bit like being Gary Cooper in High Noon. <laughs> Outnumbered in a big way. I remember the story of the fellow here a while ago who was running for Congress as a Republican. He stopped by a farm to do some campaigning, and when the farmer heard he was a Republican, his jaw dropped, and he said, wait right here. He said, ah, while I get Ma, she's never seen a Republican before. <laughs> so he got Ma, and the candidate looked around for a podium to give his speech from, the only thing he could find was a pile of that stuff that Bess Truman took 35 years trying to get Harry to call fertilizer. <laughs> so he got up on the mound, and when they came back, he gave his speech. End of it, the farmer says, that's the first time I've ever heard a Republican speech. Candidate said, that's the first time I've ever given a Republican speech from a Democratic platform. <laughs> three fellows that went out of the building to get in their car and found they'd locked the keys in. They were locked out. And one of them said, get a wire coat or ha coat hanger and we straighten it out and I can get the... And the other one says, you can't do that. They'd, somebody think we're stealing the car. And the third one said, well, we better do something pretty quick because it's raining, starting to rain and the top's down. <laughs> this convention brings back so many memories to a fellow like me. I can still remember my first Republican convention. Abraham Lincoln giving a speech that <laughs> sent tingles down my spine. No, I have to confess, I wasn't actually there. The truth is, way back then, I belonged to the other party. <laughs> Seems that 25 of San Francisco's top bootleggers, this is a little story to illustrate what I've just said about uh, candor, they were arrested back there in those days of the Volstead Act. And as they were being arraigned, the judge asked the usual question, of course, of, about their occupation. And the first 24 were all engaged in the same professional activity. Each claimed he was a realtor. <laughs> and then he got to the last one, the 25th, and says, and what are you? He asked the last prisoner, and the, the fellow says, Your Honor, I'm a bootlegger. And the judge was surprised, but he laughed, and he said, well, how's business? He said it would be a lot better if there weren't so many realtors around. <laughs> President Alfonsine and I have much in common. We both have gone through many campaigns and asked for votes from many different kinds of people. Down in Texas during the 1976 primary, 
they had me out knocking on doors. And I remember one kind of rural area. I'd been governor of California, but I wasn't all that well-known in Texas. And I knocked on the door, and an old fellow in his undershirt and jeans came to the door, and I told him I was running for president. And having been in the occupation I'd been in for a number of years, I was kind of surprised when he asked me what I'd done for a living. And I told him I'd been an actor. And then he asked me what my name was. And I thought, well, maybe if I give him a hint. And so I said, well, my initials were RR. And with that, a face lit up. And he turned and he ran back into the house and he was yelling, Ma, Ma, come on out here quick. Roy Rogers is outside. <laughs> So, of course, asking for help suggests a certain degree of trust, which reminds me of a story. It has to do with a fellow that fell off a cliff, and he grabbed a limb on the way down, and there he hung, dangling above the rocky canyon, and he looked up and, and uh, <clears throat> didn't see anyone, and he finally shouted out, Oh, Lord, if you're up there, tell me what to do. And a moment later, a voice came booming down from the heavens that said, if you have faith, let go. Well, he took another look down at those rocks 200 feet below and looked up again and says, is there anyone else up there? <laughs> We're to the fourth cartoon. Now, this one, it's called, titled, The Great Communicator. But as you can see, there's been some mistake there. They left the balloon blank. So I think that I will start filling it in. I forgot what I was going to say. Reminds me a little bit of the story of the man that took his young son-in-law out and was going to introduce him to golf. And told him all that he had to do and teed up the ball and the kid took a swing and he missed the golf ball entirely but hit a ant's nest there and into the air and so lined up and took a crack at it and again hit another gouge out of the ant's nest and now there were ants flying all the way through the air and as he lined up for the third try two ants peeked out of the crater that he'd left and one of them said if we want to survive this we better get on the ball <laughs> Being a former Democrat myself, I know how difficult it is. We're proud to have you all with us. I have to tell you that I had started working for the party before I got around to joining it. And one night, 1962 state campaign in California, I was speaking at a fundraiser and a woman stood up in the middle of the audience and asked me if I'd re-registered. And I said, no, but I, I'm going to. She said, I'm a registrar. She walked right down the middle aisle. <laughs> put the paper up and I signed up and then said, now, where was I? <laughs> Could I just say something here about this? I'm half Irish, too. <laughs> the other part is English and Scotch. But I just, I just can't help but telling you, and you can take this with you for, as I'm going to take this with me, that the, I was the, visiting Ireland and the, my father's ancestors 
background and community and so forth, and then found myself on Cashel Rock where St. Patrick erected the first cross. And the young Irish guide was taking us through the old ancient cemetery. And we came to one tombstone. And he proudly pointed out, and the tombstone was inscribed, Remember me as you pass by, for as you are, so once was I. But as I am, you too will be, so be content to follow me. And this had proven too much for some Irish who had, who had scratched on the stone underneath. To follow you, I am content. I wish I knew which way you went. <laughs> you know, so much of, of what we're trying to do, and so much of this, depended on real communications. And I can't resist. I've told this story before, and if some of you have heard it before, it illustrates communications. You'll have to forgive me, but life not only begins, or lumbago, I should say, not only begins at 40, but so does the tendency to tell the same story over and over again. But I've always thought of the importance of communication and how much a part it plays in what you and I, what all of us are trying to do. And one day, a former place kicker with the Los Angeles Rams, who later became a sports announcer, Danny Villanueva, told me about communications. He said he'd been having dinner over at the home of a young ball player with the Dodgers. The young wife was bustling about getting the dinner ready. They were talking sports, and the baby started to cry. And over her shoulder, his busy wife said to the ball player, change the baby. And he was a young fellow, and he was embarrassed in front of Danny, and he said, what do you mean, change the baby? I'm a ball player. That's not my line of work. And she turned around, put her hands on her hips, and she communicated. <laughs> she said, look, Buster, you lay the diaper out like a diamond. You put second base on home plate. You put the baby's bottom on the pitcher's mound. You hook up first and third, slide home underneath, and if it starts to rain, the game ain't called. You start all over. <laughs> Something else I... I have to interject here, although this is not an occasion for humor. But I've had a kind of a hobby lately of collecting, by way of dissidence, stories that are told behind some of those iron curtains and those iron walls by the people themselves showing their own cynicism about the system under which they're forced to live. And one recently that I heard had to do with three dogs that were having a conversation, an American dog, a Polish dog, and a and a Russian dog. And the American dog was telling him about how well he barks, and then in our country, the, his master gives him some meat, and the Polish dog said, what's meat? <laughs> and the, German, or the, the Russian dog says, what's bark? <laughs> it reminds me of a story. I, in case you were wondering, this is my way of sliding into a story. Many of you here work on east-west trade issues, and I like to collect stories that I can verify that the Russian people tell among themselves, so I'm going to tell you this one. It's about General Secretary Gorbachev. Seems that as part of the campaign to straighten things out there in his country, he had issued an order that everyone caught speeding or seen speeding should get a ticket, no matter how important they might be. Well, one morning he was out at his country home and realized that he was running late for a meeting that he had in the Kremlin, and he went out to get in his car and told the driver to get in the back seat that he'd drive. And he did, and down the street he went, and they passed two motorcycle policemen. 
and the one of them took off after him. And a little while later, he came back and joined his companion, the other motorcycle officer. And the fellow said, did you give him a ticket? And he said, no. Well, he said, why not? Well, he said, no, no, he was, this was someone too important. Well, he said, we were told to give it no matter who it was that they were going to take. No, he says, not, not that. Well, he said, who was it? Well, he said, I, I don't know. I couldn't recognize him there. But his driver is Gorbachev. <laughs> I have to tell you right here, I have been collecting stories that I can absolutely establish are told by the people behind the Iron Curtain in the Communist bloc. And they're stories that reveal their kind of cynicism about the system under which they live. And one of the more recent ones that I heard was about the man walking along the street at night, Moscow, Soviet soldier called to him to halt, he started to run the show, soldier shot him. And another man said, why did you do that? Well, he said, curfew. Well, he said, it isn't curfew yet. He said, I know, he's a friend of mine. I know where he lives. He couldn't have made it. <laughs> Slander number three. <laughs> that does, I shouldn't, I know, but that does trigger another one of those stories I've picked up from over there. They came to General Secretary Gorbachev. And they told him there was a woman in the Kremlin. She wouldn't leave unless she could see him. So he said, well, bring her in. And they brought her in. And he said, old mother, what is it? What? She said, I have a question. He said, all right. She said, was communism invented by a politician or a scientist? Well, he said, a, a politician. She said, that explains it. A scientist would have tried it on mice first. <laughs> you know, there's a story about a young fellow from the city who hired out to work on a farm during the harvest season. And the first morning, everyone was up well before dawn. The new hired hand and the farmer made their way in the dark out to the oat field. Neither one of them saying a word. And finally, the city fellow asked, what kind of oats were they going to cut? Wild oats or tame oats? And the farmer, a little surprised, said, well, tame oats, of course. Why do you ask? Well, he said, I was just wondering why we're sneaking up on them in the dark. <laughs> There's a story... And I understand it's true. It's about a newspaper photographer out in Los Angeles. Kind of reminds me of Howard. He was called in by his editor and told of a fire that was raging in Palos Verdes. That's a hilly area in the southern part of Los Angeles County. And the photographer's assignment was to rush down to a small local airport, board a waiting plane, go out and get some pictures of the fire and be back in time for the afternoon edition. Well, he raced down the freeway, broke all the traffic laws, got to the airport, drove his car to the end of the runway, and sure enough, there was a plane revving up its engines, ready to go. He jumped in the plane shouting, let's go, and they were off. At about 5,000 feet, he began getting his camera out of the bag, told the fellow flying the plane to get him over the fire so he could get his pictures and get back to the paper. And from the other side of the cockpit, there was a deafening silence. And then he heard those words he will always remember. Aren't you the instructor? You know, when I think of the welfare system, it reminds me of a story, and I know some here have heard me tell this before, and maybe everybody knows it, but pretend that you haven't heard it because I like to tell the story. <laughs> it's a story about the parent with the two children and two sons, and one of them was a dyed-in-the-wool pessimist, and the other one was an incurable optimist, and they thought they were both so unrealistic that they talked to a psychiatrist about it, and he said he thought he could solve the problem. 
And they said, well, what? Well, he said, let's get the most magnificent set of toys any boy ever had, and we'll put them in a room. We'll take the pessimist there, and then we'll turn him loose. And when he sees those toys and knows they're all for him, he'll get over being a pessimist. Well, he said, what are you going to do about the optimist? Well, he said, I have a friend who's got a racing stable. And he said, we can get quite a quantity of what they clean out of the stable. And we'll put that in another room, and when the optimist has seen his brother get those toys, and then he gets that, he'll get over being an optimist. <laughs> well, they did it. Finally, after a period, they then went in and followed in where the boy was with the toys, and he was sitting there crying. And they said, what, what are you crying about? He said, well, I know somebody's going to come and take these away from me. <laughs> and they went down to the room with the optimist, and he was on that top of that pile of stuff, and he was throwing it over his shoulder as fast as he could. And they said, what are you doing? He says, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> President Reagan, you are missed, sir. Before we conclude with the holiday favorite, be sure to tune into the Scott Hum Show tomorrow, Wednesday, at 4 p.m. Pacific time for news, as well Scott's snarky humor and insightful analysis. Who knows, Romeo might even show up. And, being that Sunday was the yearly celebration of America's independence, we have a wonderful audio treat for you. It's the Skidmore College Orchestra performing the climax of the 1812 Overture, by Tykowski. The performance is licensed for commercial use under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. For Romeo Hill, Scott Hum, David Griggs and the rest of the Weird Media Network, I'm Shanique with thanking you for tuning into The Romeo Show.